Hey, hey! Welcome back, my Freedom Pack family. Today on the show, we are joined by Dr. Bruce Miller, at BJ Miller MD, commonly known, as you've guessed it, as BJ Miller. I first stumbled upon BJ many years back through his TED Talk, which has been viewed now more than 5 million times on YouTube. BJ is a hospice and palliative care physician at the UCSF Medical Center. Dr. Miller previously worked as the executive director at the Zen Hospice Project, in which he treats hospitalized patients with terminal or life-altering illnesses. BJ has been featured in many major publications. He's appeared on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday, The New York Times, and he's just released a book alongside Shoshana Berger called The Beginner's Guide to the End, which comes out at the time of this episode release, and one can imagine that will also be a bestseller. So by this point, you are probably thinking, what the hell does this have to do with with our brand? Like, we're a peak performance podcast. Well, I think this is a hugely important topic to cover. BJ has overseen the deaths of literally thousands of people. So there's no one better to tell us what really matters in life than BJ. In this podcast, we're going to talk about life and death. We're going to discuss what really matters in life. What the biggest regrets are that people have at the end. And also, how to live a life so you don't mind when your time comes. I truly believe that this is one of the most important and captivating pieces of content we've ever produced. And I highly recommend that you listen to the full thing. I have to say that after the episode, Lewis and I, we both completely fell head over heels for BJ. And after this conversation, I'm sure you all will too. Without any further ado, BJ Miller, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Thanks for having me. It is such a privilege. We've been looking forward to this for a while. So if you could just talk about, so where did your initial experiences with death come from? Um, Well, for me, it really, there was a, I mean, a slow awakening that any kid goes through, you know, when you're goldfish dies and your cat dies and things like that but it really came home for me when I was injured in college when I was 19 I had electrical burns and lost my arm and two legs and you know that was a (laughs) that was a big big moment and for a couple months it was touch and go and was pretty close to the edge there and so that's that's where I that's where I really got turned on to the subject. That's where it was not it was not an abstract thing. There was there were parts of me dying in front of me and I was about to die myself and I and I could feel it. Yeah, and, and obviously at the time before, you know, you you'd had a chance to reflect on that like you do now. What were your initial you know, what were your initial feelings and your thoughts towards towards that? It's interesting to think about it because it, the experience at the time I, I only learned a month 
month or so into the ordeal that I had been very close. Well, I, knew, I mean, I knew I had been close to death, but I didn't realize how how close I continued to be to death. You know, my the doctors would tell my parents most days for the first month that, you know, he might not make it through the night kind of thing. And so it but that oddly, that was relayed to me after I was out of out of the woods. And so in re, in retrospect, my experience was one of just more dealing with pain and bewilderment and medications and just the sort of rigmarole of getting through a burn unit day. But over time, really, it was where reflecting back on that experience and thinking through what my body felt like and where my mind went, that's where I kind of, that's where the relationship with death kind of opened up. And that's where all the reflection started happening. You know, what, what was the value of life? And was the value of life, did I have less value now that I had fewer body parts? You know, was I what was lost in the injury and what really wasn't and and what was gained and what was gained for me was really an appreciation of of life as it relates to death or vice versa life has its punch that is precious be- exactly because it ends one day and that that's the kind of thinking that got me started and i soon found myself much more appreciative of what i had while i had it I still struggle with that. I still take things for granted, et cetera. But that was sort of the general impulse. And and over time, over, say, maybe the first couple of years, the experience shifted from one of, you know, fear and pain and just sort of and, and loss, just a feeling of loss to one of opening expanse. Much uh, I, I, I realized I dropped a lot of my fears. And so over time, that's that's kind of how it how it how I landed, and I kind of refashioned myself. And then I decided to go in medicine. And when I was in medicine, I I thought I'd work with other disabled people, but then I got turned on to hospice work and really found myself at home there. So if we just actually look at the incident, what what was happening? So you were climbing. Mm-hmm. Was it across a train line? Was it? Yeah, yeah. It was a it was a commuter train in New Jersey with the wires running overhead. And um, so we had climbed a, a parked train. It was just sitting there. It was not. It was not a. We didn't think a very daring thing to do. We had done. Put it this way: we had we had done many dumber things. But we climbed it like you climb a jungle gym, just sitting there. And when I stood up, I had a metal watch on, and the electricity arced to the watch from the power line. And that that's that's how it happened. That's what that's how it went down. Wow. So you were still a student at at this point. I take it in Princeton. Yeah, that's right. I was in my second year at Princeton, right? Did you go back into education pretty soon, or because obviously I know you went back to do art history after this? Was there a, a long yeah. time between them? No, no. I really it was a it was a choice to some degree. I mean, I remember consciously deciding that I wanted to get back physically, get back on the horse, and get back to school as soon as possible, and and I wanted to get back with my class. One thing, one of the one of the beautiful things that happened is that I got this privileged view of, of my own funeral. Like, who, who would show up? Who cared? You know, and I, I came to see when I was in the hospital that I, that I was actually really loved. I had really beautiful friendships and the family and people showed up. I mean, it was just, it was amazing. 
And so I was very motivated to get back to Princeton as soon as I could and get back with my class if I could. So the accident was at the end of November um, 1990. And then I went back to school the following fall, that you know, the next September. And in between which I finished my coursework and, and caught up with my class and away I went. But But I started to tell you guys, there was a conscious decision to say, hey, the psychology and the emotion – around all this is going to be playing out for years. So I shouldn't wait until I feel great to go back. I should get back on the horse and, and re-entering that stream of life um, will pull me where I needed to go. And that was, the, that was the general hunch. I didn't have everything figured out by a long shot, but jumping back in, I, I would learn more quickly and and lose less ground and that is that's more or less how it played out I'm, I'm glad i did that sometimes i don't think it's a great idea to ram past your emotions and sometimes i think it makes sense to wait until you feel better but in this case it had been enough time and it was i was good to go good enough to go lewis and i we've both lived the student life we were both obviously at the same age when you went to to college so you come back it's september You've got mm -hmm. these war wounds. Something that I'd love to know is, for anyone that has seen BJ, you're a very, very good-looking man. You're a handsome man. What was the reaction like from women? Because I bet that they, I bet that they loved this. I mean, you were, you must have been a, a sort of center of attention for them at that point. <laughs> yeah, it was, I was, you can imagine, you're, I mean, one of the things about a long hospital course is it's just boring as hell. And, uh, you know, you just have plenty of time to sit and think. And one of my early thoughts as a 19 year old was, was I going to get laid again? Was like, was this, <laughs> this who, what, what was I looking at? Now? I mean, was I less of a man now and all this shit? I, you know, I was really, of course, just spinning around. Um, but I quickly found that in some way, in some, it took me a while to kind of sleuth this out. But no, when I got out of the hospital and I was in, in Chicago at the time, that's where my family lived. And, you know, I was out of the hospital at home doing outpatient physical therapy and whatever. And so I was out in the world a little bit. And it, it wasn't long before I realized that, no, that there was still energy and, and attraction in both directions from me and towards me. And, you know, it pretty, that, and that, that question got answered pretty quickly. And I'm <laughs> very grateful for that because honestly, for the obvious reasons, but as you're really, I mean, you are really in a very vulnerable position and you're, and you're, you're kind of born again and you're laying down new pathways uh, in all ways. And your sense of self is re is being, is, is redeveloping. And so it was a precious time. And, you know, if I had more trauma on top of trauma, I could have sent me way, way back. But I had some early luck with friendships and early luck with girlfriends. And, it, you know, it worked out. It allowed me over the couple of years to get back into my body and not hate my body and actually like it. Uh, actually, it could be a thing of pleasure, not just pain. And that was hugely valuable. Maybe what you're also referring to, Joe, is... There is this thing. It took me a little while to figure this out. Like I also there was I was a magnet for the different kind of attraction. I got a lot of sort of um, interest that I you know that I was like a the phrase that came up back then was like I was a bird with a clipped wing, you know, and that's wow. someone was going to find wow. me and nurture me and make me whole again. You know, that was the sort of the romantic view I saw in some people's eyes. 
And frankly, that was a little nauseating after a while. I was not this thing that I didn't need them to fix me. I didn't want them to fix me. And the, the source of the attraction was my wound. That that ceased to be very interesting within a couple years. <laughs> but yeah. Is it safe to say that overall the, you took a silver lining from something that was extremely tragic? Because I, I've heard the saying before that a tragedy is only truly tragic when you take nothing away from it. You know, there's some truth to that. I mean, I, you know, part of me, it's hard. Like if I, you know, for example, like when I'm talking to patients myself as a doctor who, you know, are themselves going through a trauma, uh, you know, it's like you can't talk about the silver linings too quickly and you got to let folks feel the junk. You can't kind of, you can't leap to the positive side or I don't think you can personally I think you actually end up clipping off a lot of important emotional development and I and I don't personally think that the purpose of life is just to be free and easy and happy like I, I don't I've met some free and easy and happy people and they're pretty dull like actually I think you need you need to feel the scope of emotions you need to like roll around with the sorrow to deal with it to get to those silver linings but so just a little preamble to make sure we don't shame the hard feelings. But yeah, eventually a huge piece of my own therapy was actively looking for where this was a positive. Where could what could I learn that I wouldn't have learned otherwise, or what could I learn just period that would all of a sudden or, or not all of a sudden, that would over time make my life feel that make make me feel right in my skin and right in the world again. And that is so went back to college used my injuries as a as a jumping off point to think about art and why humans make art and i went into medicine because of these experiences and made meaning from that and so yeah i have purposely constructed a life around some of the silver linings and over time you know on balance you get to a point where jesus i've gained so much from this experience like i don't even know if i'd trade it you know like and that's a beautiful place to be after you've lost a couple limbs if you can actually get to a place where you're not sure that you'd even trade your old body back for the lessons you learned, that's that's, that's pretty good. And eventually, you know, after maybe five years, I, I truly felt that way. Could you give an example of some of the silver linings that you found? And the reason that I ask is because I heard you talk about the example of not stepping on stingrays. And I thought that was <laughs> such a brilliant example. So I'm just wondering, are there any other silver linings that you found? Well, yeah, so it started like it was very purposeful and it was started in this really rudimentary way because early on it didn't, there was, there was, it wasn't, I wasn't feeling very fortunate in all sorts of ways and I really did not enjoy my body and it was still yelling at me and it was ugly and it was that, but bit by bit you sort of construct a counter argument. So one of the early ones was as a kid who grew up in the Midwest of the U.S., you know, when I found myself lucky to get into an ocean, I was terrified of stingrays or terrified of sharks, like from the movies. And so all of a sudden I felt like, oh, well, geez, now that I don't have feet, well, gosh, stepping on a stingray tail wouldn't be so bad. And hey, that's something my peers can't say. Oh, that's kind of cool. And, you know, little things like that. I mean, it almost it, it was silly, but I was aware of it at the time. But you are, again, you're constructing a counterpoint. So that was one of them, a very basic one. But over time, many more have developed. Like in general, the whole opportunity as a young man to really – reapproach your bodily life the opportunity sort of the excuse to reflect on life as a young man in ways that normally as a young man you're kind of you just 
you're meant to kind of just barrel through and be a bag of testosterone and just, you know, I don't know, self-reflection isn't necessarily high up on a, on many 20 year olds minds. But for me, it really was and not in a recreational way. It was very therapeutic. So I got to know myself in all sorts of new ways, nooks and crannies of myself that I wouldn't necessarily have seen that needed some experience to come to pop to pull me out of myself. And I got to, you know, over time, I got to drop I don't know about you guys, but and I still do it. I mean, we humans like you're constantly comparing ourselves to each other. Am I smart enough? Am I rich enough? Am I thin enough? Whatever else, we're always kind of checking ourselves against these against these vague, impossible standards. And because I was so yanked out of the norm, I got to sort of drop that a little bit, or at least see it for what it was. And so I got to be my own judge and jury. My own sense of my own sense of self worth mostly came from me. It wasn't whether I met some external um, mark. And that was extremely liberating, as you guys maybe can imagine. I, I mean, that's an accelerated maturation process, and I'm very, very great, grateful for it. So that's one of my favorite uh, silver linings. I absolutely uh, love that so much. And I love what Napoleon Hill first talked about, where he said that every seed, every heartbreak, every failure – Every outcome which we don't appreciate within it has a seed for something of equal or greater benefit. And I love how right. you've taken a an outcome like this and really transformed it for yourself. And I imagine that with the work you do with the Zen Hospice, that patients are probably more responsive to you because you can empathize with them in a way that perhaps someone who hasn't come this close to death can. Mm. Well, you're right on. I mean, that there's a great example of a sort of silver lining, like going into medicine where I could actually kind of use these experiences very directly. That that I honestly have come to feel that I, I feel like I have an advantage over my colleagues, honestly, because you take one look at my body. I don't have to say anything. All of us suffer, right? Every, you know, it's like, no, mine are just sort of obvious, and it's helpful in a way. I can't, I can't hide, and therefore I kind of have to own it. And that people respond to that kind of confidence. And so when I walk into a patient's room, someone I've never met, you know, they just all they have to do is look at my body, and they know on some level that I've been through something. That I'm not just some egghead doctor telling them what to do uh, and having never gone through it themselves. I had been in the bed, as I say, and that. That gets me trust with patients and families in a, a more immediate way. And I, I do feel like it's a truly an advantage and people open up to me in different ways. So I have made a career out of working with that advantage, but it is absolutely an advantage. There's no two ways about it. I know it's a hard question to, to really nail down to a yes or no, but categorically, can you say that you do or don't regret that? Do or don't regret the the injuries? Yeah. I don't. I think if I had to choose an answer, I don't. I mean, no, let's back up for a quick second. I don't think the lessons that I learned are, you know, still learning. They're not exotic foreign lessons. There are lessons that all of us have to one way find our, you know, find our way to or, or hopefully we do. Like I say, it's like an accelerated maturation or something. So I want to be clear, like, one of the realizations that for me early on was very important was that that everyone suffers and therefore suffering is a link between people, not something that isolates people from each other. In fact, it should bring us closer. Uh, we all 
have pains, seen and unseen, period, end of story, full stop. I have never met a person who has not suffered. And so I just joined a, a club that's just has very obvious source of pain. And so I want to be, you know, I don't, I didn't learn mysterious secret lessons. It just helped yank me to certain places quickly and in a way that I couldn't deny at a young age that has, and that I have found those, and I found those lessons very fruitful. And I get to live a longer life under the banner of having learned some of those lessons. So, but you guys, am I making, I, I hope I'm clear. I just want to make sure that the, the, the listeners understand there's nothing exotic about this. You don't have to go lop off a limb to experience what we're, we're talking about. You just have to be a human being on the planet for more than a week and you will find yourself suffering one way or another and dealing with that suffering. Like I just had to deal with my suffering and that was, that was the gift. So back to your question, you know, I, do I believe I would have learned these things eventually? Do I did I need the expense of two legs and an arm? Uh, no. And would I like that old body back? Yeah. But you know, it's such an impossible question, and I don't know. I don't know that I would have learned the things that I would have learned in time to actually use them in this way. So, if I again coming around, if I had to choose, no, I'd say I don't regret it. At this point, no, I don't. I wonder. Do you feel as if going through that experience as you talked about the the lessons that you learned did it sort of feel as if this is your call into go and do the work which uh, for the people listening now I, I think i read that you've overseen a thousand deaths in an mm. empathetic way which i believe is one of your major missions and i love as well that you talk about that by definition to die, we have to be alive. So yeah. could you just talk about, I mean, d d does it feel as if like, this is your calling type of thing? Like this is, you know, what? Sorry, is there a dog there? Yeah, yeah that's my dog. Yeah. Harass some, some neighbor. Um, um, yeah, yeah, you could definitely. So a couple, so a couple things to clarify. So I know, so my work now, my clinical work is, has always been at UCSF. I have been with many thousands of patients, many of whom have died in my clinical work at UCSF and at Zen Hospice. To your point about it being a calling, well, you know, in my worldview, I'm not so convinced. I don't know. I don't know if there's a, a, a greater meaning. I do believe that there is there are things that we just don't understand and can't understand as human beings and that there is a connection among all life in the world in the universe etc. I have a there's a cosmology to it that I that I of connection that I feel and see. But I don't necessarily I I am more of the of the mind that humans you know probably make meaning rather than actually discover it or find it like that we we apply meaning. So I guess I don't know if I, I, so as a calling, well, I made it one, you know what I mean? Like I made a decision. I've almost dropped out of medicine several times. I mean, there is the practice of the medicine, uh, the practice of medicine and the ideals of medicine, at least in the U.S., there can be quite a, a gap between those ideals and the practice. And it's, it, it can be very disheartening. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I have made a calling from it because I have just like dedicated my life to using these experiences, but more to the point, I've dedicated my life to the mitigation of suffering. And, and that can be meted out in how you treat people when you walk down the street. It doesn't need to be a clinical encounter. So, so yeah, I think I've, I've made a calling from it, 
I give myself that credit, frankly. I also feel like, you know what? I could apply these things in a gazillion different ways, and I bet I'll retire from medicine on the relatively on early side and, and do other things. But always with this mission of finding meaning in my own life, making meaning in my own life, mitigating suffering in the world, maximizing beauty, etc. Feeling and navigating the connections between us. Like if you're in pain, well, then I'm going to be in pain too. Like that kind of operating from that connectivity with humans, that is, that's a mission. And that can be, that can be meted out as a barista, as a doorman, as a plumber, you, you name it. But I, I'm in medicine for now. I don't think I'll do it forever, but I like it now. I sort of touched on that call in was because, you know, if I'm being frank, the work which you do, I'm not sure if everybody is cut out for it. I'm not sure mm. if different yeah. personalities, different people with emotions. And when I look at it, I think that your experiences, I mean, you even talked about, I heard you talking about how, I believe it was your mother that was quite sick and you sort of realized very early on that life is rooted in suffering in, in a lot of ways. And you, That's right. Yeah. And you touched on meaning but there and, and about these connections, the the empathy, the suffering, the, the connections, all these other things. Did you mm. find that the patients that you were treating in your palliative care, did you learn a lot of these important lessons about what really matters from people at the end of their life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the end of life, why it's why I find it an attractive place to, to sit, you know, the interface, right, right where it's like where the, tr where like a tree meets the ground or something, you know, some, in, I like interfaces. I like right at the edge of transition. And so I do hang, I do as a palliative care clinician, I do end of life work and hospice work. And I do, and this is probably the wrong word, but I am attracted to the subject, not in a ghoulish way, but because at the end of life, life gets very, dist can get distilled and, and essences can pop out in ways that, that get obscured in the rest of life. And it's so easy to be distracted. But at the end of life, you know, you're really, many of us, when what I've seen, a lot of people are, are their most alive on some level. They're the most awake. They're their most forgiving. They're the most kind. They're the most of a lot of good things. And so, yeah, the end of life is just this very concentrated way, place where you can see these things in great relief. On, on that subject, uh, no. this is something I've, uh, I've always wanted to know. And, you know, I see a lot of it on sort of Instagram from these sort of inspirational, motivational speakers who seem to use mm -hmm. this as a, as a cliche mm -hmm. for, for their talks. And they always say that, you know, people on their deathbed always say the words, I wish. And I wonder if, if these people, you know, if that's just a sweeping statement or is that just an easy way to motivate people? And I thought you'd be the best person to ask, is that is that true? Is Are these dying people, do you, do you hear the words, I wish a lot, or is, is that just sort of a sweeping statement for motivational purposes? I think that's probably more the, the latter, sort of, you know, um, some sort of boiled down essence that's more for effect than for truth. Um, at least in my experience, I don't mean to be disparaging. We all, you know, hey, inspiration is hard 
to come by, we should find it and protect it. It's a, it's an important, compelling life force. So, hey, wherever you get your inspirations, all right by me. But no, no, I don't think no. There's not. We shouldn't glorify the end of life either. I mean, uh, we have to be really careful and that we don't overly project a bunch of lessons and other things that we may glean as we're walking around the planet far from death ourselves. Um, no, it's much more complicated than that. It's much more sad than that. And there's, and this whole idea of closure, a tight, sort of a tidy end, lots of closure, everything kind of wrapped up in a bow. I mean, that happens, but that is not the, that's not the rule. Um, and statements like I wish, sure. People say, I, I wish I had more time. Maybe I wish for this or that. Or, sure. Maybe, but no, by the time most of the people I've ever worked with, by the time they actually are doing the dying where all this abstraction is really becoming real. N- no, most of the patients I see are ready to go at that point. They feel kind of done with life one way or another. It's really the families who are sitting around reflecting in different ways and looking for big lessons and sweeping statements and tidy uh, tidy takeaways. I don't see patients themselves doing that very often. You said that at the end of the day that you saw that people's traits like feeling more alive, being more kind, more empathetic, yeah. all these different things. Is there any sort of maybe process or way in which instead of us waiting for us to to die that if we could Mm. sort of embody that now whilst we've got the chance oh yeah oh amen guys that is that's i think i don't know if there's a singular point to the work i'm trying to do and others like me uh no, I think that is the grand so, so sort of societal calling here is that the, the, what's now normal is you defer thinking about death, you delay it, you distract yourself from it <laughs> because ostensibly it's a it's a negative force. It's a drag. It'll pull you down. Um, that's bullshit. It certainly complicates life to think about death um, on some level. But no, no, the, the, the tragedy, I don't think it's tragic that we die. I think it's tragic that we waste a bunch of life while we have it. That's <laughs> that's the tragedy. And folks, it's very it's too common for folks who have led the sort of more distracted life to get to the end and just be loaded with regret with no time to do much about it. That's that's where that's where it's really that's really that's where it gets hard. And because you don't get that time back. So to your point, man, if we could all, I'm so grateful for your podcast and for people having these conversations now, is that if we, if we fold mortality, if we fold death into our view of life, if we really in our bones take it in that someday we're going to die, if we let ourselves feel that time is precious we are much more prone to appreciating the time that we have while we had it and coming to the end, not loaded with regret, but instead filled up with joy and having done the work of dispersing your ego. And sure, this body will die, but life will go on. And I'll find immortality through friendships and through connections and other residues that I leave in a life. That's plenty of mortality. I don't need much more than that. But that only comes if you consciously turn your attention to the uh, ephemeral nature of life and that time is precious and that you don't just, yeah, 
I, I'll, I'll just start repeating myself. I can, I, can, I can leave it at that. So you put your finger on what I hope is the great lesson for all of us and the reason to think about these things earlier, the reason that we wrote this book, et cetera, is so that we don't come to the end of life surprised that we die and laden with regret. Do you think that that is the great tragedy that we could be lying on our deathbeds full of regrets rather than arriving there with a, a battered and bruised body full of full of memories? You know, we didn't regret not telling the person that we loved, that we loved them or yeah. that we took that yeah. trip, that we did all these other things which where we chose comfort over maybe the truth or we did these things do you think that that's the greatest tragedy rather than actually dying i certainly do in the end like i say once your body is kind of once your body starts proving that it's it ain't gonna last forever and aches and pains take over and things just ain't working very well and you start realizing there's life outside of your body and this body is gonna go and at some point with enough support um, many people get to a point where they're really done with this body. The, that part, the death in a way, can end up feeling like a relief. Um, again, I gotta be really careful. It's complicated stuff and you can't project this onto the dying person. They gotta, gotta it's, it's up to them. It's another really important caveat in all this is that, you know, thinking about death, ruminating on it, equating our sort of daily losses with little mini deaths so that we get to relate to and get to try to understand death, et cetera. Those are all very good and useful things. And I think we also have to be very careful to defer to the person who's actually doing the dying in our midst. You know, there, there is a distinction to be made there. So I want to make sure to give the dying person that power. I haven't died yet. I don't really know. I've come close. I know some things. I've seen a lot of things, but I don't know everything. So that's a really important caveat on this. And I don't want your listeners to think that, oh, yeah, I'll think about death a little bit and then I'm good. You know, then I'll get to the end of life and everything will feel fine. I'll be done. Eh, it's not that easy. Um, but back to your point, I absolutely, like, again, death is not the enemy. In fact, at some point, death is, is for most people, welcome. The enemy is, is a wasted life. If, if we need an enemy, let that be the enemy. A while back, I think I guess I could say I was quite sort of ignorant to the subject of death. It's something I didn't really enjoy thinking about or, or thought was important. And I remember seeing uh, an advert at our local university um, where we're based. They were running, and they still run this thing called a death cafe. Um, and what they yeah. do essentially is they have you know like all these themed cakes and things like that, and and everyone sits around. Uh, having conversations about death and I knew someone who went and I saw them post about how much closer to life they felt afterwards and how much power they drew just by talking about the end and it made me wonder uh, obviously I wasn't there so I'm not sure what the conversations were but they definitely seemed important so what would you say are the yeah. important conversations to have about death if we were to speak about it yeah, well, the Death Cafe movement is really beautiful. I mean, it's one one of one of the efforts happening on that gives me hope. You know that there are people are setting up structures and safe places to think about death. I mean, that's the that's the thing I see in people is, is that we're not so much in denial as much as we're not sure how to talk about it, where it's safe to talk about it. Because the second you talk about death with many people, they go, oh God, that's so depressing, don't you know? Uh, so we, we, it's just, it's very hard to know where to put this interest. Um, so death cafes and other things like it really, I, I, I love the whole concept. It's just basically making a safe, supportive space to ruminate on our mortality. So that's beautiful. I, I love that. We, we should all do so. I mean, honestly, 
once you start getting turned on to this, death is just friggin' everywhere. I mean, you just walk down the street, you're going to kill a, you know, a couple thousand bugs with your feet. You're going to see leaves falling from trees that have essentially that are dying. You know, you're going to see <laughs> people suffering in all sorts of ways. You just open your eyes. Death is all over the place. Loss is all over the place. You'll start seeing how entwined it is with life. Not, not it's not its opposite or it's not an aberrancy, but totally integral to life. So I'm getting off track here. So that that's that's backdrop. But to your question, yeah. So there there runs a gamut. There are some very practical things that you need to do to prepare. You know, there's paperwork. There's an advanced care directive. There's your will and trust. You know, these kind of estate planning. There's all sorts of little things you have to you don't have to do, but are very helpful, very useful to, things to do. So, from the practical, ranging from a like you know health insurance, ranging for caregivers to come into the home or whatever it may be, all very very important. Saving money because the end of life gets pretty expensive, at least in the U.S. Yeah, all very important thing to do. Very practical, and our books filled with that stuff. And I would say I, I must and, – and, and I guess I'm also pointing to that underneath all that, that's the, the sort of ethos that comes with mortality, the realization that we're all linked in this suffering way, that we all suffer and the compassion that can flow from that if you let it, the kindness that comes from that, the really getting good at forgiving yourself at the end of the day for not – figuring everything out and not doing everything and letting go of things at the right time, holding on to things at the right time. You know, that that's the much more interesting work that I think ten, uh, rolling around with, with mortality will point you to. So yes, practical things, like I said, and some very deep sort of moral, uh, philosophical, spiritual things that need to happen too. I'd love to keep this theme alive. So you've studied death and you've been around it for so long. I suppose that that then leaves the question to what really matters. I think one point is that we should all answer that question for ourselves. Yeah, there there's received wisdom you can get from books, from elders, from the church, you name it. But that you... I would say you, each of us, need to answer that question of what's really important to us. And I would say the good news is what's important to us at the end of life tends to be what's important to us in general if you're really, really looking. I would say from what I've seen, there are themes that come up. So the connections between people, even not necessarily – sure, long friendships and relationships and all their complexities and layers – Amazing. Wonderful. Pay attention to those. Those get more precious as you get closer to the end. But it ain't just those long. I mean, it's every sort of every minute of every day walking down the street, just sending out, you know, when someone cuts you off and they kind of wave or say, I'm so sorry, or they hold open the door for you. These little, little things, those are practically as potent in my experience. Those are little itty bitty moments of because what are they? They're moments of connection of seeing someone and being seen of uh, not in some social light way. I mean, like someone like, hey, I see you, I get you, I, I recognize you are on this planet, we are in the same place at the same time. I, it's like bearing witness. And that happens in instance all through the day if you let it. Little, little moments of connection that come and go. They're, those things are gold. So one theme is exploring the world of connection, 
between humans, between animals, between yourself and the rest of nature, period, between art, anything, anything that connects you to this planet at this time, explore it, roll around with it, love it. That will go a long way of pushing back on regret. And it just feels good. Living in the moment is another big theme. Um, yes, reckoning with the clock and knowing that it will run out one day and therefore to make sure you don't miss anything, really live every second of the day if you can. Being in the moment is where meditation can be so powerful. Learning to kind of focus your mind so that you don't miss things right in front of your face. Uh, these can be really, really powerful forces. I think these things matter greatly. Um, but I, if I had to pick one, it's back to this connection thing. And it, again, I, it doesn't I've met some very folks who've had really hard lives and don't feel connected to just about anything, but they may be connected to that cigarette or maybe they're connected to their pet hamster or they may be connected to the artwork uh, a, a, on a wall in some building they walk by. It doesn't need to be exotic. It doesn't need to be deep. Connection, period, is is the salve. And so I, I think that if I had to sort of distill it down to one thing, that's somewhere we should all focus. There's a definite takeaway but there that the little things, those micro moments, they really aren't that little. I heard, no. you know, I, I've heard people say that to fall in love with someone, it's not about intensity, it's about consistency, it's about it's not about the date or the flower that you bought for your partner on no. Valentine's Day, it's about waking up in the morning and bringing them a, a glass of orange juice and they didn't ask it's, it's those micro moments yeah. which i feel you're talking about but they yes my, my, and if anything they're just more potent than not less those little things get bigger yes absolutely my next question to you would be on this theme is that as you were talking it, it took me back to the steve jobs commencement speech where he talked about how knowing that you are going to someday die will really set you on a path of cutting out the noise and getting through to what really, really matters. How can we change our connotations about death? Because you mentioned earlier that there is a stigma around there. A lot of people, they hear it and they don't want to know, they don't want to engage in a conversation about it. So how can we change our associations with death? to really begin to cut down to what really matters? Well, I think your, you know, this conversations like this is, is, is one, one answer. Death cafe is another. Um, and it can be small or grand gestures. It can be internal. Just you yourself, as you go through your day, note the various losses you come upon. And I don't see huge different, a huge distinction between the loss of a relationship, the loss of a limb, or the loss of life. I mean, I think the the muscle that we should that we should engage there is learn how to grieve things, and by learning how to grieve things, we realize that that is total. Grieving something is the same thing as loving it. Period. End of story. And you start making these connections between life and death, between lo loss and beauty, between grief and love, and that's where life really starts to get really rich and really interesting in all sorts of ways. And um, you know, I, I do think that I think if each of us just owned our losses, the answer is not outside. It's mostly inside of us. If we owned our losses, if we grieved them, like, you know, gave them, gave our grief some space, let ourselves feel the loss and relate it to the love and just wore that on our sleeves, not like in some 
you know, not hide, just basically not hide. You know, if each of us kind of came out of the closet as mortals, <laughs> I think we'd all, I think, I think society would look and feel different. The, the spasticity going into sort of anti-aging efforts, et cetera, would, would, would temper. And, you know, like we've said at the start of this, this conversation, the loss of my limbs and the love of life that that begat were totally related. And I'm not sure I don't. And I, I therefore I don't regret the loss of my limbs. It 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 made it made <laughs> here's excuse this phrase. It made love. It created it created love in my life. And so so finding these little connections in your daily life. That's what I think each of us can do. And if we all did that, man, the world would be a, a different place. And you can also exercise it. Go into palliative care. Go into health care. Go into medicine. Uh, exercise kindness and forgiveness as a way of life because everyone you meet is suffering on some level. And um, so anyway, you can exercise these, 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 these interests and these thoughts and these skills in myriad ways. I just the point is that you just engage the subject at all and I believe the rest will flow. I have a family member and they always say this whenever there's anything on TV surrounding death, whenever it's a birthday, they always just say the same thing. They say, I don't want to die and they just ignore the subject. And I just it's it's, mm-hmm. it's quite an ignorant view, but a lot of people will say that. Like so essentially, what would you say to the type of person that would just say I don't want to die. That's it. I don't want to. I really don't want to. I don't want to face it. What, what would you say to that person? I'd say, I hear you. You know, I don't blame you. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to die either. The the and if and if they'll engage more conversation with me, I would say, you know, the 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 bugger and the the sort of beauty in this is, or maybe a, even a paradox is, if you dare to look at mortality. You will re- be rewarded by loving this life even more. So if you tell me you don't want to die, I take that. I hear that as saying that you love your life, that you love life. And so I'd say keep looking at it, and you will find that loving life and losing it are are related. And at some point, maybe you'll accept that death is part of this love of life, and maybe that will reduce the sting. But maybe not. You know, my goal here isn't to make death easy. Uh, my goal is to make it just so it's not uh, necessarily so hard so that we don't keep inventing ways to get in our own way, don't we? We're inventing ways to hurt, inventing ways to hate our nature. That's the part I'm trying to change. But no, you want to love life? You want to go out screaming? That's fine by me. I'll, st- I'll stand by your bedside. I won't run away. It's the abandonment thing that I think most people fear. Um, so, hey, you love life, you don't want to die, fine by me. But if I stick here with you, if we sit here together and we keep talking, I bet you will find over time that that love of life and the acceptance of death go go together very nicely. This may come across as insensitive in some way, but I wonder if... So we've talked about some of the happiest people that you've seen, the ones which were sort of celebrated the end. What would you say were some of the unhappiest people that they just weren't ready to go type of thing? Mm. Were, were there any sort of themes that you noticed there? In folks who have in folks who have died in in some amount of mi- misery. Um, yeah, yeah, or just they yeah. just weren't ready for it, or they were just unhappy to go type of thing. Yeah, you know, 
It's interesting. If you hang out at the bedside long enough, most of those folks who are kicking and screaming, that often softens in the in the moments before death too. I think a lot of the 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 residue of the kicking and screaming is is mostly in us who have to stay behind. <laughs> it's mostly in the families, you know. It's not in the person who's dying, which is kind of stunning. Or or just, you know, kind of an important distinction. But sure, I've been around people who do, really, who are just fighting it tooth and nail to the end. And sometimes that reflects some failing on my part as their doctor. I didn't help prepare them well enough or I didn't treat their pain, you know, well enough. Sometimes it's just physical, brutal, physical suffering. Um, So sometimes it reflects a failing, perhaps. But, you know, most of the time, I would say, you know, from what I've seen is the folks who go out kicking and screaming, well, they're just – they're fighters. Their identity is as a fighter. And they're going to go out kicking and screaming no matter what you do because kicking and screaming is their currency. That's how they interact with with things. That's how they show they care. So most of the time, that kicking and screaming actually is like, hey, all right, I'll I'll sit here with you. I'll kick and scream with you. That's you being you. That's you loving life. That's the goal. Great. Fine. Like I say, sometimes it reflects a failure, but most of the time not. And most of the time it's really concentrated in us who have to keep living, not the person who's actually dying. There was one word towards the end of the book which you included and it really hit me out. I remember reading it and laying in bed later that day and thinking about it. That word was participate. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Oh, I love I love that you bring that up, you know, because trying to close out this book on this enormous subject and I mean, you know, was tricky. I mean, the, the book was tricky. I mean, how it's how do you how do you reduce this subject to, uh, you know, to the page? Um, but when pushed, like, what was the takeaway? Where was their wisdom? Um, you know, like I say, if, if, if we say that if the if the lesson is, oh, just no, don't worry about death. Just k- click your heels and just embrace it all and love, just love it all. Yeah, okay, great. If you can do that, great. But what happens to folks who just who can't get there, don't want to get there? What we have done is just set them up to feel like they're failing. Like what is what a shitty thing to do. <laughs> like not only you have to be dying and heartbroken and, and whatever, you have to be ashamed. You have to feel like you're failing to be dying, that you didn't find some great perspective and then you didn't wrap everything up with a bow and that you didn't find beauty in death. That and We cannot set people up. That is not a failure. So what was the takeaway then? What? How could we bring this to a close, this book? And it just, you know, we thought on this for a long, long time. And if if the goal isn't to win – if the goal isn't to some is isn't to advance, um, if the goal is much more realistic than that, um, then I think what we're really suggesting is like no, li- life's going to be hard no matter what you do, and life's going to be beautiful no matter what you do. Depersonalize a little bit, you know. And basically, all we're asking of each other is to wholeheartedly participate in life. Not let's not tie it to an outcome all the time. Life shouldn't be s- strategic all the time. It's not a means to an end. Life is an end in it itself. And so therefore, all, all we can ask of ourselves and each other, given all these uncertainties, all these things we can't control, all we can really ask is that we participate. Just 
try, try, try to lean into this thing that that you have, this life of yours. If you do that, I mean, it may sound trite or oversimplified, but I don't really think it is. I think that's all we can ask of ourselves and each other. Wow, no. <laughs> there's a sound clip for the Instagram if uh, ever I viewed one. <laughs> I I wonder on this theme of participation and just linking back to an idea which you talked about earlier. Are there any patients that you've dealt with that were in fact participating that you took a lot of inspiration from? And the reason I say mm. this is because in your TED talk, you give the example of Frank that went mm-hmm. whitewater rafting, which is just a crazy story. So I'm just wondering, do you, are there any other stories of, particip- of participation and inspiration which you've personally taken? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are loads of them. Almost every, practically every patient. Frank, Frank leapt to mind when you were beginning to ask me that question just because he was a dramatic example, and he's someone uh, that I felt just very close to. You know, as, as a clinician, you still get to be a human being, and there are some patients you're just going to be more connected with than others. And frankly, there can be some patients that you like more than others. That's just – that's no shame, you know. And so uh, so whatever so, – so Frank comes to mind because I really love Frank, and we actually really loved each other. We were – I would call us friends. And and he was just a remarkable dude, in all the ways that are that you referenced in the TED talk. But um, you know, more recently, I was just it practically pick any patient. Um, more recently, I was talking. I'm just I haven't even met this patient. She's pretty darn sick, and towards the end, and all of our visits have been by video conference. And so I've never actually touched her flesh. We've never said hello in person. But the way she's going about holding both her 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 wish to keep living she's got two young kids a doting loving husband uh, all sorts of things that she really likes in her life just fine thank you she doesn't need to lose them to appreciate them so she's doing this very beautiful thing which is holding she's holding it all she's holding her love of of life and wanting to keep living and preparing for that and, and, and sending and good sort of positive vibes to her body and, doing, and eating the right thing. She's doing everything she can to keep living. And at the same time, she is holding the re- reality of her death coming soon in the same palm of her hand. She is also planning for that death. She's also taking care of her kids in, in important ways. She's also teaching her kids how to suffer in a way how to die. And she's not making the fool's choice between, oh, I'm going to let go of life and screw it. It's, it doesn't matter anyway. Screw it. I'm done with life. And she's not going cynical as a way to get off the planet. And nor is she clinging with her fingernails to stay on the planet. She's doing all of the above. And it's that that sort of simultaneity that mostly is is really the source of inspiration time and again for me. When I see people not forcing themselves to make foolish decisions, but holding all of it, finding space in themselves to hold all of these things, even when they seem to contradict, that's the stuff that I just get, that gives me chills. Um, obviously, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing, and I know that, but I wonder if there are any uh, principles that, going to be applied to everyone and that is how we can go about living a life where we don't regret dying Mm. i think 
I think we've talked a little bit about connection and, and applying that connection. Not, and it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be in a way that even others recognize. It can be a connection to a cat. It can be a, a connection to an inanimate anim, object. But but feel those, ply those, navigate those. That is, that is really central. Um, I think in the practical side, preparing, especially if you have family, doing your paperwork so that, that your family doesn't have to deal with the courts and, and fighting over your stuff, et cetera, once you're gone and, 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 and compounding their grief. Sort of really planning for your death and planning for life after you is really one of the kindest things anything anyone can do for the people they love. Like you may not want to do your advanced care planning, but you know if you've got someone in your life that's going to be that's going to survive you, it's really one of the most loving things you can do for them. So yeah, that's important too. But I would I, for me, it kind of comes back to this sort of I suppose it's sort of a moral plane that we realize that we are all broken, that we all struggle. And if you can internalize that and you can forgive that in yourself, then you can be this little node of light walking around the planet. And you can find, even in your pain, you can find some meaning, you can find some beauty. And that, and then if, you know, if each of us sort of shines, just a dim, dim little light, a little pilot light in ourselves somewhere. And it usually comes back to kindness, compassion, forgiveness, that stuff. At the end of the day, find a way to not hate yourself. Find a way to not hate each other. Then, yeah, then, then, then I think we're all just fine. The one mindset which comes to mind, which I think sort of liberates fear, it, it sort of empowers you to go and feel alive, is that it's part of the deal. You yeah, know, I mean, it's it's part of the deal. Death is part of the deal. Where we signed up to it when we when yeah. we agreed to live. <laughs> yeah, is is that it's the mindset? Is yes. that the mindset which you would recommend? I I would. You know, there there are many ways to skin a cat, and you can find others who will, who will offer different advice and thoughts. And but for me, yeah, that is that it's a package deal just like joy and pain you know these are these are package deals and don't try to over edit it don't you know i've watched people try to keep away all the bad quote-unquote bad things in life and uh, accumulate all the good things in life i would suggest you just drop your adjectives altogether. just <laughs> good bad ah, in the end does it really matter it's just the stuff there's there things it, you are things are things exist and i'm just thrilled that anything exists i can't believe the three of us are on the same planet at the same time and are talking over a computer like that's enough that's that that's a that fact is enough to fuel me for a week so yes, see that as a package deal. And if you can see this in li- this life as a package deal that comes with sorrows, it comes with loss, it comes with death. Then again, you're going to you're not going to you're not going to you can't cherry pick it. You know, you can't hate yourself there. It's just that's just the nature. That is the takeaway. This is a package deal. You can't have one without the other without the other. I think now is the best time to move on to three questions that we ask every guest that comes on the show. These will be the last three questions of this podcast. And the first one is, you are obviously an author and you know your book is going to impact so many people. But are there any books you may have read in your life that have impacted you in any way? Well, on this subject, I mean, the classic 
Victor Frankl book, Man's Search for Meaning, is I think just extremely helpful and readable. I love Michael Carney, an Irish pilot of Caradoc, who now lives over here in California. He's written many books, but and they're all beautiful. But Mortally Wounded was very helpful for me. Uh, Frank Ostaseski's uh, Fra- The Five Invitations is a relatively new book. It comes from a sort of Buddhist angle that I think is very useful in the world. But yeah, f- f- for me, it's mostly like I get more – for me, it's like go out in the woods or go to the museum. And actually, instead of pondering life, like be, be in life, they go together, of course. But I, I find more instruction from trees than I do from books that they become. Are there any societal rules or norms that you love to break? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think we've been talking about a big one, which is, you know, dare dare to own your losses, dare to see death as part of life, that feels actually kind of courageous these days. I mean, that that is bucking bucking a major message that the world of commerce and spasticity sends out. So, uh, you know, there's one. I've always loved being a fish out of water, really. I've kind of wrapped my head around it when I got into this body. And I have, you know, I am a fish out of water in all sorts of ways, just walking around, the, just walking down the street. And I've come to kind of love that feeling because what it does is it, it I'd rather us. Yeah. Disability and death are normal, quote unquote normal. Let's like let's expand the definition of normal. Life is weird. Life is outrageous. Again, that, that, that we get to be on this little rock floating around the universe. I, it's just nuts. So the weirder that is for me, the truer. Um and so, I, yeah, yeah, I, I do love bucking norms. I love what's going on like sexually on some level, that people are obliterating the lines between hetero and homosexual, that, you know, that all these sort of – that there are so many gray zones in the world and that we're finally on some level and uh, seem to be coming to terms with those grays and quit ramming it into black and white kind of thinking. You cut so much of the color spectrum off that way. If you could distill – all the lessons and, and things you've learned in your life. And, and someone said to you, you know, BJ, I'm going to give you the chance to cast a short but impactful message and every single person on the planet will hear it. What would your message be? Mm. <laughs> well, I'm tempted to say one that popped into my mind years ago, which is that you're freer than you're, that you, you are freer than you think. And um, I think that freedom comes with a, a full-hearted acknowledgement of the breadth of reality. And that breadth of reality includes death, as we've been talking. Um, but within that frame, we are pretty dang free. Um, we don't have to wear that same old uniform. We don't have to think the same old way. You don't have to absorb everything around you and be just another variation on those themes you, you know i i guess i'm sorry i i could kind of go on and off on this riff on this for a while but i i love that statement you are freer than you think and i maybe we'll just stop there and it also it also implies that you aren't just what you think and you aren't just your body so there are a lot of implications to that statement but i i'll i'll just leave that at that today you're freer than you think and where can our listeners connect with you and where can they go out and get the, the new book well, yeah, so Beginner's Guide to the End, uh, Simon Schuster, it's coming out next week, or it's Quercus Books in the UK, um, and it's coming out next Tuesday. 
you can find it, of course, on Amazon and Simon & Schuster and Quercus websites and uh, ho soon, hopefully, at your local bookstore, which would be wonderful. Um, and we'd love and if people do buy it and read it, you know, and if you're into social media, yeah, tweet it, uh, put it in your Facebook, make a comment, tell us what you think about it. Come to our website. It's just the acronym of the book, A-B-G-T-T-E, A Beginner's Guide to the End, A-B-G-T-T-E.com. Um, all that stuff, you know, spread the word. That's lovely. Um, if, and helpful if you if you're feeling it. Um, and you can connect with me. I'm on Twitter at BJ Miller MD. My co-author, I should mention Shoshana Berger, is at Shoshana Berger. I should have mentioned earlier on, I do have a co-author in this whole enterprise. And, um, so she's a, she's a wonderful person, and it's, this, is, this has been a joint exercise. So reach out to either of us or both of us. We've got a Facebook thing going on. I'm not on Facebook yet. i got to learn that one, but that's happening too. Um, so there's some, there's, some, there's some portals for you. BJ. What a thought-provoking conversation. Thank you for tackling this subject, taking the time to explore major topics and for being so authentic. So we thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And again, I really, again, thank you for doing this kind of work. You are now part of this sort of awakening around the subject, and I, and I really appreciate it. Thank you both, and I appreciate what you're doing.